0: So I just got back, my family and I, from a vacation where we took our camper halfway across the country with three kids under the age of six. And to say that it was crazy and confining at times would be an understatement. One day I woke up, I was frazzled, I was trying to find, you know... Uh, my phone and where I had left it and what I had done with it. And I said, Erica, would you ring my phone for me? Erica's my wife, uh, not one of my kids. And so she rings my phone and I hear it. And I'm like, I think it's in the bed somewhere. And I'm lifting up all the sheets and the covers and I can't find it. And um, she said, well, maybe it's at the front of the camper. So I walk to the front and she rings it again. And she's like, wow, it sounds just as close to you as it was before. And I said, I know. Can you believe it? It's such a mystery. And she's like, hey, is it in your pocket? Ah, yes, it was There's something extremely frustrating About knowing that you're close to something You've been looking for But not being able to find it, right? Ladies, how many times have your husband If you're married, has asked you Hey, do you know where this is in the refrigerator? My wife will say Yeah, it's on the second shelf Towards the back It's right behind the butter And I'll be like, okay, and I'll go there And I look, and it's not there And I'll say, sweetheart, it's not here. Do you know her? And she'll come in. She's like, what are you talking about? It's right in front of your face. Can I get an amen, ladies? Can I get a rah, 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 rah from you guys? Yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes what we're looking for is right in front of us, but we overlook it because, I don't know, maybe it's just too obvious. Have you ever been looking for your glasses or sunglasses? You know where I'm going with this? And you're like, I cannot find my glasses anywhere. Where in the world could they be? Oh, yeah. Sometimes what we're looking for is right in front of our face, but it's so obvious that we can't even see it. Well, we're continuing our series through Isaiah today. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, your your mobile device, or wherever you're going to be reading today, it's also going to be on the screen. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 29. Verses eleven through fifteen, but I just want to give you a little bit of background. Starting in in verse or chapter twenty eight, there is a prophecy that God gives to Isaiah to share with the king and with the people of Judah. Uh, it's an impending judgment of the capitals of both Israel and Judah. The end of the prophecy will end in chapter thirty five uh, when. Isaiah is going to paint a beautiful, hopeful picture of God's exiled people celebrating the return to Zion, the city of Jerusalem. When we get to chapter 39 in the, this part of the prophecy, um, we are given a glimpse of an event that will play out. And we can read that story in 2 Kings chapter 18 and chapters 19. In that story, what you'll find is that Jerusalem has been surrounded by thousands Hundreds of thousands of Assyrians who were the baddest warriors on the planet at that time. People were terrified of them. The death knell was getting ready to ring. Remember, the Assyrians were experts in psychological warfare. They knew that creating fear within a nation uh, could cause them to capitulate, whatever that word means. Or surrender. Even before the first arrow was ever loosed. The Assyrians were the most feared army in the world at that time. Now, as they're surrounding Jerusalem, an emissary from the king of Assyria comes to the gate of Jerusalem where the representatives of King Hezekiah are waiting to talk with them. And they begin to converse. And the Assyrian emissary says to the representatives, look, you're doomed. It's over. Your God can't protect you. Your army can't protect you. Your allies can't protect you. No one can stand against us. And so you might as well just give up now. And the representatives of King Hezekiah are like, listen, could you please speak to us in your language because we don't want the people who are on the wall to hear what you're saying. And the, the emissary of the Assyrians begins to laugh. And he's like, listen, this threat isn't just for you. It's for the people. And so he begins to shout out loud so that everyone can hear. Your God is not powerful enough to save you. We will destroy you. Either you can surrender and live and be exported to another country in another place. Or you can choose to defy us and die a horrible death. It's up to you. But know this. Every Army, we've come in contact with every country we have defeated. Their gods weren't able to save you, them, and your God won't be able to save you. No one can stand against the Assyrian Empire. And then he goes back to his army of hundreds of thousands. The representatives of King Hezekiah go back to the king and tell him, tear their clothes, which is a sign of great mourning. And as they're going back, King Hezekiah then goes to the Lord and says, God, you know that we are in a hopeless situation. No one can save us but you. They have mocked you. They have said that you don't have the power to intervene, but God, you're our only hope. So please meet us where we are. Come into our impossibility with the possibility of hope. Save us, Lord, for your, your, we are your people. Isaiah the prophet comes to the king later and says, Hezekiah, God has heard your prayer and he has answered your prayer and he is going to save you. And that night, according to 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, an angel of the Lord came among the hundreds of thousands of Assyrian troops and killed 185,000 of the baddest warriors on the planet. One angel. One angel. Now, friends, let me ask you a question today. Do you believe that God has the power, the compassion, and the will to intervene in your life do you believe that the God who created you, that created this world, that created this solar system, that, that knit you together in your mother's being, in your mother's womb, has the power to intercede where you are right now? Because some of you are spiraling. Some of you are struggling in your life. Your marriage is a mess. Your kids are crazy. Your parents are, are out of this world. You're dealing with financial difficulty. You're dealing with, with unrelenting medical issues. You feel lost. You feel hopeless. You feel broken. Finances are, are out of this, out of control your mortgage is is coming due and you don't have a way of paying it and you wonder where are you God in the midst of my panic where are you in the midst of my pain where are you in the midst of my struggle Lord can you save me can you help me because I feel alone do you believe that God has the power the compassion and the will to help you Wherever you are, does God care about you? Roughly 3000 years ago, the psalmist, some believe it was David, wrote, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Have you ever felt that way? Why would God care about me when he has the entire universe to run, the entire solar system? How could he care about my little problems that are so huge to me? Maybe that's why Jesus sought to comfort those fears. The fears of those who wondered whether God really cared about them or not. He says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows friends, this is really important today because you may not be in this place, but there are some people in this room today who are wondering if their life really matters to God. So what I'd like you to do right now, even though it may be uncomfortable, it doesn't really matter because I'm up here and you're down there. But would you just turn to the person next to you, whether you know him or not, would you just say, God cares about you? Now would you return to the favor, the favor to the person next to you if you haven't already? I realize that some of you in this room are sitting here today thinking to yourself that the numbers on your hair, uh, the the numbers of hair on your head are not quite as great a mystery as it used to be. But for those of you who are struggling, I want to encourage you. I once heard Mike Bro, who is the senior pastor at Southland Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and who also happens to be bald, say, When you look at me, all you see is a bald head. But this just isn't a bald head. This is a solar panel for a love machine. <laughs> so we know that God cares about us because Jesus told us that he does. So the next question is, is can he do anything about it? Jerusalem had witnessed the destruction of between 42 and 46 towns or cities in their kingdom, in the kingdom of Judah. Totally raised. They knew the, the reputation of the Assyrians for torture and psychological warfare and total annihilation and great suffering and all kinds of horrors. They were surrounded by hundreds of soldiers... It was down to the capital city. And the angel of the Lord, one, killed 185,000 in one night. You think God has the power to save you? One angel, 185,000 of the baddest soldiers in the world. Do you think he has enough power to save you? Do you think he has enough care to save you? Well let's go back to our story I'm going to have you stand up As we're going to read from God's word Isaiah chapter 29 As we're in the custom of doing here This is what it says All the future events in this vision Are like a sealed book to them When you give it to those who can read They will say We can't read it because it's sealed When you give it to those who cannot read They will say We don't know how to read You can sit down Not a lot there, right? Now this is a curious passage. We're talking about a mystery, a vision that has been sealed. A vision that God has given to a prophet who's given to the king and to the people. But the problem is, is they can't understand it. Those who can read won't be able to read it because it's been sealed. For those who can't read, it doesn't matter because, well, they can't read. It will be a mystery. Can you imagine the frustration of receiving a vision from God, a prophecy from God, and not being able to understand what God is trying to tell you, especially when it's an important vision about your future, but you can't read it. You can't understand it. You know, it's incredibly important to the future of yourself, as well as the future of your children, as well as the future of your children's children. And you can't quite get through the mystery. How many of you like to solve mysteries? How many of you watch unsolved mysteries? How does it feel when you're unable to solve a mystery? Putting together a puzzle, figuring out a television show, figuring out who stole the candy out of your locker at school? By the way, it was your younger sibling. How does it feel when you're stuck with a mystery that can't be solved? There's a story of a college student. His name was Joe. Uh, no relation to our lead pastor, Joe, but his name was Joe. And he took an ornithology class, which was a class based on the study of birds. And before his final... Uh, test was going to be taken. He stayed up all night studying the textbook, going over the professor's notes, uh, learning about as many birds as he could. He needed a four point or an A in his class. And so he just was busting all the barriers and able, and able to, to, to learn about birds. Uh, first thing the next morning, he was in class in the very front row. And before the classroom, there was a table of 10 birds covered with sacks leaving only their feet as being visible. Professor gets up and he's like, okay, class, this is your final test. It's worth 40% of your grade. Today, I'm going to invite you to come to the front of the room and identify every one of these birds by their technical name, their common name, their species, their habitat, their mating rituals, all by looking at their legs. Well, the student, Joe, was just frustrated. He spent all night studying everything in the book, going all the... This was the most ridiculous, ludicrous test that he'd ever taken or even heard of. And as they sat there thinking about all the hours he'd wasted, knowing that this was going to be 40% of his grade, he just began to kind of boil and bubble up inside. And finally, he said, this is is ridiculous. I can't do this. And so he walked up to the professor's desk. He crumpled up his test. He threw it on the professor's desk. And he's like, this is the stupidest test I have ever taken taken how could you do this to us i stayed up all night studying i did everything in my power to be ready for this and now you've thrown us a curveball there's no way that i can figure out um, the difference between these birds simply by looking at their legs with that he turned around and began to storm out of the classroom and just as he got to the door the professor finally gathered himself together and got his wherewithal and he called out to the student hey you student what's your name Joe turned around, pulled up his pant leg and said, You tell me, prof. You tell me. (laughs) Mysteries can be confounding. They find a home in the peripheries of our thoughts. They're ever-present. Some mysteries are heart-wrenching. A lost loved one. An unsolved murder. Here's the real kicker. In Judah's context, the reason they couldn't understand the mystery that was presented before them was because they had made a choice. It was their own doing. Listen to what verses 11 through 13 say. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote." You see, the depth of this nation's faith had slowly eroded over time. The deep abiding, abiding faith that had distinguished Israel from every other country in the world was eroded by the winds of easy living, of politics and world events. The faith that used to define Israel now had become a cliche used to describe Israel's culture and what it looked like. It's like being asked to describe a person. Who is this person? And instead of talking about their character or their personality or their inequalities, you begin to describe them by what they wear. You see, it was no longer a deep, intimate relationship with their Creator that drove them. It was the cultural identity of their Jewishness that drove them. Now, friends, you can look like a Christian... You can dress like a Christian. You can wear crosses on your chains, around your neck. You can attend Bible studies and mission trips and learn to speak speak Christianese. And you can have bumper stickers on the back of your Buick. But if you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, everything you do is for naught. Religion tells us what we must do. Faith tells us why we must do it. So let me ask you a question today, and this is a question that needs to resonate in your heart and rattle around in your brain. Does your faith determine your behavior? Or does your behavior determine your faith? One of the greatest sorrows of my life is watching Christians willingly throw out part of God's word simply because it conflicts with the feelings of the popular culture at that time. Especially in a canceled culture-rich environment. You see, the culture wants you to know that a standard, any standard, is disparaging. And so there is no longer absolute truth because absolute truth would indicate that there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And if you hold to any standard, then you are a hater and haters must be canceled. I think the great mischaracterization of the Christian faith Is that it's hateful to tell someone that there is a right way to live and a l- wrong way to live Now on this great american journey that my wife and I took uh, out west in our camper Um, the kids were going crazy and you know I have a six-year-old an almost four-year-old and an almost two-year-old and my wife is pregnant with number four Um, i'll be 67 when the last one graduates But my three-year-old loves to climb loves to climb she's uh will climb anything anything that she can have control over especially if there's candy up high she will find a way to get it and we were out west uh, and she was climbing on this furniture and she was about five feet off the ground i said sweetheart you you got to get down and she looked at me and she said daddy i hear what you're saying but my heart tells me to climb Now, listen, her heart may have told her to climb, but what happens if she falls and breaks an arm or fractures her skull? Is it wrong for me as her dad to warn her not to climb even though that's what she thinks her heart wants to do? Is it wrong because I, I don't want her to be hurt that I care about her, that I love her, and I can see the worst possible thing that might, might happen if she would slip or fall? My child would be hurt and I love my child too much to let her put, to put herself in a dangerous situation. Do you think that maybe God is trying to hurt you by telling you that there is a right way to live that will lead to a better life and there's a wrong way that you can live that will lead to heartache? What parent wouldn't want the best for their child? Because ultimately actions have consequences. And friends, what we face today isn't a lot different than what they faced over the last several thousand years. This Jewish state that had been separated because of their love of God and the purity to the Word and their faith had over time seeped in other faiths, other religions brought about by their neighbors and people who had moved into the area. And this Jewish faith that was so important to who they were in their identity slowly began to erode. And soon the Jews built altars to worship idols and children were sacrificed on the altars of Moloch. The temple was forsaken and God was forgotten and society said, just learn to live and let live. And Isaiah writes, because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will pass away and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. What sorrow awaits those who try to hide their plans from the Lord? Who do the evil deeds? Who who do their evil deeds in the dark? The Lord can't see us. They say, He doesn't know what's going on. Listen, here's the thing. I know that sometimes people say, "I don't want to follow God because He's too restrictive." But God is trying to give you boundaries to live in, not to harm you, not to hurt you, but to protect you, to give you full life, to help you live your best life. Because when you are living outside of that lane, what you're going to encounter is heartache and brokenness and sorrow. I've seen it again and again and again. I'm not saying that if you follow God, your life is going to be perfect. It's going to be um, a bowl of roses or Reese's Pieces. But what I am saying is that you will mitigate some of the heartache that you will likely face if you live outside of his will. Because the way we live, the way we believe, produces fruit. Good fruit, bad fruit. Good fruit, bad fruit. Listen to what Galatians chapter 5 says about that. But the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives. If you want to memorize something, memorize this. Love, joy, joy. Peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you are living according to what God has called you to live, if you are following Jesus, if you're allowing him to overflow your senses and to to live inside of you, you will begin to produce that fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If not, you're going to produce a whole different kind of fruit that's going to be toxic to you and toxic to everyone around you. People will know you by the fruit you produce. R.C. Sproul, in his book Objections Answered, tells about a young Jewish boy who grew up in Germany many, many years ago. He had this incredible love and admiration for his father, uh, who saw to it that life of the family revolved around the religious practices of their faith. The father took them to synagogue um, all the time, faithfully. In his teen years, however, the boy's family was faced to move or forced to move to another town in Germany, and um, in that town there was no synagogue. There was just a Lutheran church. The life of the community revolved around the Lutheran church. All of the most important people went there. All of the best people went there. And if you wanted to be somebody in that community, you needed to be a part of that church. Suddenly, one day, the father announced to the entire family that they were going to forsake and abandon their Jewish tradition and join the Lutheran church. Now, this family had been so involved in a faith that they said they believed in, were, were shocked. Why would dad do this? And so they confronted their dad and he said to them, the reason we are abandoning our Jewish traditions to join this church is because it will be good for business. The youngster was bewildered and confused. It soon gave way to disappointment and bitterness and anger that plagued him throughout the rest of his life. Later, he would go from Germany to England to study and each day would find him in the British Museum formulating ideas and composing a book. He would eventually introduce this idea, this worldview, to the masses with a design to change the world. He would write that religion is the opiate of the masses. His name was Karl Marx. He had created something called Marxism, which would eventually become the basis of socialism and communism. Now, friends, the lives of billions of people, millions of families... Have been impacted and in, in many cases destroyed. And the root of it, the genesis of it, is all because one father wore his faith as he did a suit of clothes, not a life changed by his creator. I'll close with this today. In the final analysis of your life, will people know you by your faith in your good fruit? or the clothes that you wear that are constantly changing. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the way that you love us. God, I know that in this room today, there are people who are struggling and who are afraid and who feel like they're at the very end of um, the rope. God, they don't know where they're going to find hope. They don't know where they're going to find help. They don't know why they're go- where they're going to find intervention. Lord, they may not even know where they're going to take their next, next breath. So today, God, I just pray for peace. I pray that you would remind us of your presence in our life, that the fruit we produce will be the fruit that's of your spirit. God, help us not to get caught up in the wayward winds of culture. God, help us to stand on what we know is true. We pray you would change us from the inside out and that we would love others. And care for others. And make a difference in our world. Because people need hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.